Following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Welcome, listeners of the MJ Cast, to episode 46, your part two of your dangerous 25 roundtable discussion. Hello, everyone. This is Q. Thank you for joining me again. We're going to be finishing up our dangerous roundtable discussion today. We've got our wonderful returning guests who I just want to thank so much because the time we have been chatting for episode 45, the time zones have now shifted again. It is not now dawn here. It is now sort of nine o'clock in the morning. And I know over in the UK where we have some of our participants, it is about one o'clock in the morning. So I thank everyone for joining us again. We've got another great episode with some terrific discussion. So today we're going to be discussing dangerous era appearances and performances, dangerous 25 celebrations, quotation marks, dangerous style and dangerous memories. And then we will see in closing how dangerous holds up in Michael's discography. So I will go around and introduce who is participating today. I'm going to start with Mr. James Allay. James, Thank you for joining us from the U.S. Hello. How are you? Pleasure to be here again. Yes, pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. We also have Mr. Andy Healy, and you're in the U.S. as well, I believe. That is correct. Yeah, nice to be back. Thank you so much. And Samar Habib over in the U.K. Hey, Q. How are you? You're right. So great. Yes, Good two episodes in a row with you. I'm very blessed. Fantastic. <laughs> and Miss Elizabeth Amazu, this is, of course, only our second episode having you on the MJ cast. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really, really enjoying it. Thank you so much. And Mr. Mike Smallcomb, also in the UK, I believe. Yes, I'm down in the south of England. Uh, great to be back. Uh, third appearance. Uh, the, the first one we did early on, Dangerous, was amazing. So I'm sure. We'll pick up where we left off. We will. Thank you so much for staying up so late for us. I just, yeah, a huge thank to you guys for not only participating and sacrificing your time to be a part of this, our Dangerous 25 roundtable, but also for all that all of you do in the Michael community because it is amazing and and. I know Jamin and I value it and a lot of our listeners do value everything that you contribute and the community would not be the same without people like you. So thank you, everyone. Bless you. Thank you. Thank so, you. Welcome. Right back at you. <laughs> thank you. Thank so you. 
maybe we'll just quickly get into the first topic today, shall we? So we're going to be talking now about something that was a huge part of the dangerous era. It gave us so much in the way of performances and appearances from the Oprah interview, the Super Bowl halftime show, MTV's 10th anniversary performance with Slash, the premiere of the dangerous routine at the American Music Awards. We had presidential conventions and inaugurations and much more, but of course there was also the Dangerous World Tour. This was a tour of a size Michael had never before attempted and a show that he really wanted to bring to everyone in every part of the world. So why do you think Michael did so much during this time, this era, and how did this impact the era as a whole? Who would like to start? Yeah, you mentioned some of those appearances. So the inauguration, the Oprah, the Super Bowl, um, that all happened in early 93. And that is down to one man, and that is Sandy Gallen, um, Mike, one of Michael's managers at the time. Um, he, he identified there was a bit of a problem in America in terms of Michael's image, um, you know, the, the the bizarre tabloid image that Michael seemed to have there. Um, so he really felt that Michael needed to reconnect with the American public. And the strategy that he thought of was to place Michael in front of the biggest TV audiences possible. So we're talking, you know, Clinton inauguration, Oprah and the Super Bowl, massive events. And what's funny is, you know, my, uh, Sandy Gallen came up with this plan, this elaborate plan, and um, he presented it to Michael and Michael thought he was insane. And um, he said to Sandy Gallen, no way, you're crazy, and you're trying to make me the boy next door. And Sandy Gallen said, Michael, I could work with you for a thousand years, and I could never make you the all-American boy next door. <laughs> um, so reluctantly, Michael accepted. Um, and it was a big success. You know, Michael's thrilled with the results. Um, it helped Dangerous to rise up to number 10, I believe. Uh, in the Billboard chart over a year after initial release. And, you know, the LA Times, I think, described it as the sudden coming out of Michael Jackson in the United States. And Sandy Gallen was delighted because he knew that if it didn't work, he would have been fired. And I spoke to Dan Beck, who was working for Sony at the time, and Sony were delighted. They felt they'd accomplished so much from an image standpoint in the US. And Michael even managed to joke about it, obviously, at the Grammy speech that he gave, the yeah. six-minute speech, which was one of his best award speeches, I have to say. Definitely. So they, they were usually, you know, I love you, and then, you know, that little interaction with the crowd, and I'm, I thank this person, I thank that person. But that I think that six-minute speech had a lot of real quality to it. Um, it's unfortunate that, obviously, Michael, by March 93, had accomplished so much in the States, you know, completely turned around you know, his image there, and... And then obviously what happened in August 93 sort of quashed all of that. And what's interesting is exactly 10 years after this, in 2003, Michael's team, you know, we're going to do the same sort of PR thing. And that was the MJ Universe project. And um, so again, Michael was going to do all these sort of PR appearances and, uh, you know, events, etc. And it was a real rebranding of Michael Jackson. Um, and then again, that got ruined by the Arviso situation. So it's interesting how 10 years apart, you know, the, the two times this is, was attempted, you know, the, the publicity is both sort of ruined. I mean, the dangerous bit obviously wasn't in vain because they accomplished so much, but 
obviously longer term it was affected and lastly both times Michael was trying to break into the film industry so summer 93 was when he'd finished uh, a dangerous album and you know he's really trying to focus towards movies that got ruined with what happened with the Chandler case and then Michael attempted it again 10 years later um, in 2003 and again that got ruined by the Arvisa situation so but yeah, the early part of 93, um, all those events, it was phenomenal. And it was down to Sandy Gallen, Michael's manager, and it was a phenomenal success. I hope we can uh, one day maybe try and talk to Sandy Gallen. He's going to have some incredible stories to share. Oh, yeah, he, he's amazing. Yeah, I was on the phone with him for, again, I think it was four or five hours. <laughs> so he was, he was brilliant. Yeah, it's definitely worth trying to get him on the show. Awesome. Yeah, it was an era like no other sort of time prior to this it was a really sort of an awakening for michael jackson in in the public reintroduction in a lot of ways elizabeth what would you have to say about why michael did so much during this time and how did he impact the whole era yeah like you know i think mike gave a really good introduction he gave a fantastic introduction actually to the to, yes. to the kind of the, the immense you know the immenseness of michael's output at this time and I think Michael was really reveling in like the joy of his own unlimitedness in this period. He just knew so powerfully how unlimited he really was. And, you know, he was really marveling in the number of mediums through which he could express himself. And, you know, what we've, you know, really come upon now is that the live performances and the appearances were also some of those mediums. And one of the things I'm really interested in is this concept of like Michael Jackson as a performer anytime he's in public. So we have a version of Michael Jackson that we see in the Oprah interview. And, you know, that interview was really, you know, Oprah touched some very sensitive topics there. You know, I think she even talked about Latoya at one point and certain things certain family members were saying about Michael, like asking him, like, this was a live broadcast around the world and she's asking him like he she asked him about his sex life you know it was so I find it like now a little bit uncomfortable to watch some of the moments but I think Michael handles the conversation with grace so <laughs> but it was grace. so like the Barbara Walters interview he had some, some years later and I think at one point Barbara Walters actually she actually criticizes what he's wearing and I was, I was like what like yeah, she says why are you dressed like that and I was yeah. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, like, how can you ask Michael Jackson why he's dressed like that? But I think that this is, an, this is a period of time where, you know, Michael was in his early 30s and he was free in a way he had never really been free before. And he had a lot of opportunities to express himself. And I do think that the personalising of him through like Sandy Gallen's work, you know, with the publicity and that period was really, really powerful. And it leaves us with some of the most iconic experiences of Michael that we have. Though my two favorites would be the Oprah Winfrey interview. And I think it's powerful that he chose a black, you know, a black interviewer. And it's something that Michael did quite a lot of times, like to have this great coming out, because he didn't really do interviews so much. Mm -hmm. especially in America, he really came out. He really did. You know, 
he talks about so many things there, about his personal relationships, about being in love. He talks about his art. He does his beatboxing. And Oprah really puts him at ease. She does ask, she asks him about his vitiligo, which is so sensitive. You know, if you have anybody, if you know anybody with skin depigmentation, it's such a sensitive issue. It's so personal. And, you know, she asked him about bleaching. She asked him about everything, all the rumors that were really pertinent at the time. And I love the way he handles himself because it's so graceful. And then obviously there's that Grammy Awards speech, that Grammy Legend Awards speech. And I think I, I have to agree with Mike. That for me is one of Michael's most iconic, dangerous era appearances for me because he's, he truly spoke from his heart and he gave his poetry as well on stage. And he talks about this cleansing process. He's, he said, I've gone through a cleansing. It's been a rebirth. And what Mike was saying is I thought that was another part of this. I think it was a real cleansing moment in his career, even in terms of his representation. And that's why I think it was felt so strongly when the events of 93 happened, because it was such a sh sharp 180-degree turn. Yeah, yeah so. absolutely. I never thought of it like that, actually. What do you think about it, um, James? It's, it's really, it's sort of a somber topic compared to what we talked about on the last episode. You know, I think it, in a lot of ways, sort of kind of feels a lot like 2009 with... Um, a lot of promise and hope and optimism. Of course, 90, the early part of 93 didn't, didn't really come off of any real tragedy, I guess. 2009 certainly came out of tragedy and then ended in tragedy. But 93 certainly ended in tragedy. And, um, you know, I think he had a lot of big, big visions for... Um, I think he had a lot of courage. I think a lot of the, the shy, sort of afraid... Michael that we knew from the 80s he really sort of he came out of that as as the uh, headline said and um you know I don't know how much we want to go into 93 it certainly is a big part of the dangerous era but you know he he canceled the uh dangerous tour he you know he had the Adams family values thing um that sort of fell apart maybe because maybe not because of the allegations he you know there was the even going down to Sonic 3 the the Sega projects uh, that may or may not have anything to do with the allegations. You know, I, I think what we saw for me, um, I am a, uh, I am a proud gay man, uh, proud married gay man. And uh, it became awkward for me, even before the allegations came out to be a huge Michael Jackson fan. And by 93, you know, 91, 92, 93, I was a full blown fan. By 93, it was literally my identity. Anyone who knew me knew me as a Michael Jackson fan, period. And I didn't even know what gay was. I certainly had no idea I was. Um, and uh, But even before the allegations came out, it was a gay thing to like Michael Jackson. And it was, you know, I, I think those appearances may have helped that or exacerbated that. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, certainly the, you know, allegations came off as believable to a lot of lesser educated people. And uh, I guess you could argue that maybe those appearances didn't help so much. So I feel like I'm going on a tangent now, but yeah, 
They were great until they were terrible. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, James, that was one of my favorite insights so far tonight. So, yeah, that thanks for that. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Well, I've got to say, so this is a period of my life when I was, what's beautiful about hearing James's uh, uh, comments there were how, you know, when you see when you see Michael Jackson or experience Michael Jackson from a completely different point of view. So I'm slightly older than he is. <laughs> clearly different background, clearly different uh, countries we're from as well. So you see the world, you see Michael Jackson from a completely different perspective. And, it's, you know, it sounds to me what James was saying, that Michael empowered him. He made him feel, like, comfortable and confident about being himself and not kind of, you know, having to worry about whatever future might, the future might have held for him. So I came, you know, I came to the dangerous period as, you know, I was probably just about to go to university at the time. And as much as I love Michael, he was beginning to, what's the word I would use? He, he wasn't as, as much of an aspiration as he had been before. So, for example, when I was an 11-year-old listening to Thriller or watching Thriller, I wanted to be Michael Jackson. You know, by the time Dangerous came out, I'm not sure if you uh, you guys remember the uh, Rolling Stone cover he did. It's a sepia tone cover with the Remember the Time image on the front cover. Do you ever, ever remember that? Did you read that? Was it the in, yeah. the in the Closet photo? Yes, the Herb Richard. Oh, yes. Herb <laughs> yeah. Richard, I beg your pardon. But it was used for the uh, single the time. cover. Yeah. 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 Time. yeah. And I remember reading that interview. I can't remember who the who the contacts were it might well have been sandy gallon actually who they spoke to and they talked about the slumber parties at michael's house and how one of the phrases that always kind of stuck with me was if you're a 13 year old boy you have complete access to michael jackson's life i was at home thinking shit i'm 19 (laughs) and uh, also then also thinking this isn't aspirational this isn't what i want to be in my life you know when you're 18 19 hormones are flying around you want to be the coolest guy on the block and michael was kind of losing his cool in kind of societal kind of norms i imagine but in terms of like what people wanted to be and what they imagined cool to be 1991-1992 would have been probably bobby brown that's what people wanted to be or new edition that's what black americans wanted to be michael jackson was kind of distancing or being removed from that picture so by the time the oprah winfrey interview came around you got to think when the Oprah Winfrey interview came around, Michael Jackson was still a very, very young guy. You know, we think of him at that stage as being a veteran and he's done everything. He was only like 33 or 34 at the time. And, you know, he was talking about the, his career and almost as if it had come to a full stop. And he was only like a, you know, young guy, young man who was just beginning his life, really. Watching the Oprah Winfrey interview, I remember watching it and thinking, this is really sad. This is a really sad story. This is not an enjoyable story. I'm not, you know, uh, it made me love him even more, but you just felt there was something going wrong somewhere. When he talked, you know, they showed, I remember there was a little montage I showed of the Jackson 5 and, you know, showing him on stage dancing and being really happy and, oh, sorry, appearing to look really happy. And then they faded back to him as he looked on the Oprah Winfrey show and almost tears in his eyes. And you just, your heart sunk inside thinking, you know, this guy should have had everything, but he had, he was so, he seemed to be so kind of lonely and alone and, you know, he didn't seem to enjoy his success. He didn't seem to be in a position to enjoy success. 
yes, obviously, you know, we saw him at the Grammy Awards with Janet, and you did have that sense of slight, you know, elation that, you know, here he is. He feel he actually feels brilliant again, and you know, it's good to see him, and he seems happy and whatever. Suddenly curtailed with like the events at the end of '93, but in terms of performances, in terms of appearances, uh, gone too soon at the inauguration is the only one I would point to because I wasn't a fan of lip syncing. I always think Michael. Gave, did himself a disservice with the lip syncing because it damaged his credibility I think as a live performing artist especially at a time like we mentioned that this was around the grunge period this was around the you know the turn of the decades and Michael performed was it the MTV 10 awards press leading into that we're talking about Michael Jackson versus George Michael that was what the press was all writing about George Michael had sold 20 million copies of the Faith album the press was all about who's going to kick whose who's ass. And the story was Michael had this massive set. That The story originally was that he had the uh, Statue of Liberty uh, hand and he was going to end the show on top of it, as he does at the end of the black and white video. Story was that George Michael had like a live band, blah, 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 blah. What George eventually did, he had a, a little group, a little kind of vocal choir. I think they sang Freedom. Uh, it might even have been a cappella or it was acoustic at least and George just went for the simple route Michael went for extravaganza but he lip synced and credibility wise I think he was he wasn't where he should have where he his talents should have allowed him to be he didn't do his talent I don't think justice during his live performances I mean I watch that George Michael performance you know regularly because it's so fantastic, so soulful, and that night he kicked Michael's ass, I think. Um, so the only kind of performance I can really point to, other than obviously the tour stuff, was the Gone Too Soon performance, because it is just so beautiful, and it's also kind of preceded with the uh, speech about Ryan White, which, uh, again, Michael, we talk about him like at these award ceremonies and whatnot, but he was a fantastic public speaker. When he when he wanted to turn it on, he could speak beautifully and you know really get his point across eloquently and fantastically, where he didn't seem to be able to in the years prior during the you know Grammys and American Music Awards. So it would be that that would be my kind of moment from the Dangerous Era. Andy, author of MJ One Hundred One series, the performances. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on this topic. I mean, I think what everyone's covered off is, you know, spot on. I take a different point of view with the MTV 10 performance. I actually call out the Will You Be There performances, probably my highlight from that era, just for the sake of the choreography. Now, I agree with Samar with, with regards to, you know, lip syncing, but the choreography in that piece and in that performance, there's just something mesmerizing about it when you watch it and you just get drawn into it and I think it's one that doesn't necessarily get its due when people talk about you know Michael and choreography because you're used to kind of remember the time you're used to you know these fast paced routines and this one's kind of more measured and more fluid I guess it, it kind of uh, I don't know it just it just captures you in a way that that other performances of his don't you know the Grammy Awards the the, the Legend Awards speech as everyone has mentioned is a key moment, I think, where Michael, if he was trying to be accessible, that's the moment that that he really made it so. Uh, he comes across as really likable. He's got a sense of humour. He's having, you know, a fun, uh, a joke with himself, with, with, with his persona. 
you know, about the rumours of him and Janet being the same people. You know, there's he's he's <laughs> showing himself being able to say, yeah, you know what, I'm human. I'm I'm there's a person behind the personality, and it's a really nice kind of touch point for him. And you can't go past the Super Bowl in terms of the impact that that had. I mean, that changed the whole Super Bowl uh, halftime performances. You know, to this day, and watching it and experiencing it live when you know, uh, quote-unquote, Michael bursts out of the first Jumbotron and is, you know, standing atop of it, you're kind of in amazement and also going, now what the hell is he going to do? Again, not a big fan of all the lip-syncing and everything in that, but just for the the way that that just changed pop culture forever in the same way that, you know, Motown 25 did, its impact is still felt today and still referenced today. To me, those those are the moments that stick with me in terms of that era as well as, um, unfortunately, being front of line to, to buy tickets for the, uh, for the Dangerous Tour the morning that the shows got cancelled and uh, feeling absolutely gutted having, having uh, camped out overnight to, to kind of ensure myself a, a good spot for tickets. But um, Andy, can how- I ask you about that? Yeah, sure. So, so was that in, that was in the east coast of Australia? Uh, so yeah, that was in Melbourne. Yep, and so you had... They the tickets had a sale date. You camped out for it. That's and correct. Yeah. Then they cancelled it pretty yeah, much so when they were just about to open the ticket window, I guess. Yeah. So at I believe it, um, I think it was around about eight fifty. So ten minutes to nine. Ticket window would have opened at nine at Bass. So that's uh, telling you something there. And yeah, they they just basically came round and they'd already handed out armrests, um, little tags, so that you knew your place in line and things like that. And then they came out at the last minute to say, you know, the tours have been cancelled, the, the shows have been cancelled, the tours have been put on hold, and you were just dumbfounded. And there was probably about, by that stage maybe, this was in a shopping centre, there was maybe like 300 people already in line at that outlet ready to buy tickets. And from an Australian point of view, it's interesting hearing other perspectives because Dangerous kind of was the winning back of the public in Australia anyway. You know, the chart success of, of Give In To Me um, you know, a year or so later after the release of, of Dangerous was massive. Um, he had, I think, four or five top ten hits. Um, most of the singles, maybe seven of them placed in the top 20. And I had friends who were into the whole grunge scene, friends who were big U2 fans, when Black or White hit kind of coming up to me saying, man, that's an amazing song. Did you see that video? Did you, you know? And it was interesting just seeing those, which songs kind of hit which markets in, in that respect. And from an Australia point of view, it was very much a, a shining moment for Michael in his career, which, you know, as we all know, didn't necessarily uh, sustain itself post-93. I think um, in Australia, Dangerous, I think, has been certified platinum 10 times, which is incredible. And, and even just the, the live tour DVD, Live in Bucharest, has gone 13 times platinum in Australia. Yeah. Incredible. I think it really resonated here. That's Thank you so much for sharing that story because I was a bit young to be sort of going to the concerts. It wasn't, I was sort of grew up in country Queensland, but I always treasure this little thing I got from, I think it was Smash Hits magazine. It's a little, <laughs> a little insert thing like Michael in Australia. And it was all preparing all of these readers for the dangerous tour to hit Australia. So, mm. and, and yeah, at the last minute, it just was oh. cancelled for understandable reasons. Thank you so much for sharing it. I've never heard someone tell a story like that. 
sorry, just one of the other things just to add is the HBO Bucharest concert being televised in the States. Again, trying to, you know, if, if whether or not Michael had decided not to tour mainland uh, USA for that tour or whether they were trying to, you know, win people back. But I remember, you know, getting that VHS as a bootleg from someone who had copied it. I saw it at a record store, Central Station in Melbourne, being played on a TV monitor and um, asking about it. And my, uh, my girlfriend at the time basically um, convinced the person behind to make a copy and give it to me. And I remember watching that, uh, you know, that in those era, you didn't, you couldn't just watch if a show, a tour kicked off in wherever, Prague or Bucharest or whatever, you couldn't watch it the next day on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you had to read newspaper reports that tried to describe the concert and, and figure out what it was like. I don't know whether, Samir, whether you got to see the, the Dangerous Tour in, in the UK. What was that like? Oh, like? Andy, Andy, well, I, I wanted to interject because, you know, as heartbreaking as your story was about the concert being cancelled, I was at the cancelled concert at Wembley Stadium. Oh, no. Oh, wow. Um, so which, which involved us queuing up for, you know, 10 hours eventually got into the stadium right at the front I've, uh, you must you may well have seen my photos online of the whole of Wembley stadium being trashed but uh we were there all night the support acts Rosala performed Chris Cross performed who were fantastic when 72,000 people would jump jump in it was pretty spectacular and the hosts kept coming on stage saying you know I hope you're all excited Michael's backstage he's you know he's, he's ready to go he's ready to go whatever time it was nine o'clock in the evening when he was about to come on stage they they wheeled someone else out to announce to the crowd that uh michael wouldn't be taking the stage and yeah the crowd wasn't too best pleased with this as you can imagine (laughs) and honestly honestly people did throw kind of fruit and oranges and whatnot at the stage and we were right at the front of it um and lit it's a, it's a memory because you know we were able to linger around at Wembley Stadium for hours on end afterwards and to kind of walk around the stage and whatnot. Wow. But what you said about the Bucharest concert, sorry, I, I completely forgot that because in I don't know what happened in the rest of the world, but in the UK, that was broadcast live on Radio One, and it was broadcast live on Radio One as their it was either their first show or, or their first day on FM radio. Up until that point, Radio One had been on AM radio. And they were using that as a kind of, you know, uh, to advertise themselves moving over to FM. And the whole concert was broadcast live. And actually, even though it was only on radio, that was probably my highlight of the whole dangerous thing, other than seeing him on concert, um, because there was such anticipation, the whole history of Bucharest and Romania. And they'd also built up with the suggestion that MJ might not be well enough to take the stage and it was delayed by about 10 15 minutes before he took the stage and eventually when he took the stage you know the radio radio uh, uh, performance was just magnificent it sounded fantastic as well that's such a great reminder sam thank you so much i'll quickly before we move on to the next topic um, i'll quickly share an experience which i'd sort of completely forgotten about yeah that that simulcast on the radio fm radio and then on the tv as well that was such a cool thing as like a I, I can't really think how old i was maybe 11 years old or something like that 10 11 12 it was so awesome so we had this old stereo in the lounge room had that going tuned in and the tv on and then we had a vcr at that time our very first vcr and i was recording it and i was so excited that i was going to get a vhs 
of a Michael Jackson concert. To me, that was just the coolest thing ever. I remember a cousin had a sleepover with us that night and it was so awesome just watching that concert. And, you know, then he finished by jet blasting off. It was insane. It was so cool. And then I was heartbroken because at the same time, my mum was making uh, an Australian dessert and she does an incredible job at this, her pavlovas. <laughs> so she was making a pavlova. But in the pavlova, you have to use an electric mixer. Oh, no way. Yes. And <laughs> if you sort of remember TVs back in the old days. Brilliant, brilliant there was interference when she was using the mixer and I was like, oh, my God, this is going on the VHS. And sure enough, in my original VHS copy, you can tell exactly where mum's making the pavlova because there's wow. all this interference across the screen of my VHS copy and I was heartbroken and I had to wait so long, but I was so happy when it finally came out on DVD because then I was like, great, no more pavlova interference. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for letting me share that silly memory. All the world must come together, face the problems that we see them name. Somehow we can work it out. my neighbor for a favor. She said later, what has come of all the people? Have we lost love of what is so?
Presents the world's greatest entertainer live in concert. Plus, a look at his latest music film. Featuring Michael Jordan. You've got a front row seat for Michael Jackson, The Dangerous Tour. Coming up next on Fox. Hey, this is Brad Sundberg, studio engineer and technical director for Michael Jackson and host of In the Studio with MJ. You're listening to the MJ cast. I remember also another thing which I think a lot of people might have forgotten, especially maybe UK listeners would know of this, definitely Australian. There's a TV show called Neighbours. It's been going for a very, very long time. There was an episode where some of the uh, characters of Neighbours won tickets to London to see Michael Jackson in concert. No way. And they, in this episode of Neighbours, and if anyone out there have recorded this or can find it, maybe send us a link. In this episode of Neighbours, they're in London and they're in the audience of the Dangerous no Concert way. at Wembley. That's so no cool. Way. And they, so that was cool. part of this was a storyline in the episode and there was footage of Michael in the background sort of wow. performing the Dangerous Concert. It's just such a bizarre memory. It's almost like I dreamed it, but I definitely <laughs> remember it because it was such a big thing for, yeah, yeah. I guess it was Channel 10 back then that had Neighbours. So, yeah, just they, they were really getting it out there so much and trying to get the performances wherever they could. Uh, and it just wove itself into, like, popular culture and yeah. Australian culture and, and just, yeah, TV stories. Like, that's crazy. And here we are 25 years later. Well, celebrating yeah. the anniversary of this incredible album and era and we are celebrating that's what we really sort of wanted to do for this show is to do something for dangerous for dangerous 25 and andy i know you're doing something for dangerous 25 which we're very much looking forward to and i can't wait to read it but uh, maybe i'll start with andy what do we think about the dangerous 25 anniversary and thoughts on sony's dangerous 25 campaign we will have an explicit tag on this episode but let's <laughs> try and rein it in just a little bit <laughs> look i you know it's it's pitiful it's you know a massively missed opportunity it's not like it's just crept up on them look they've dropped the ball so big time on this there's so much they could have done you know you've got the album for for starters you could just do an album and demos package you could do tracks that didn't make it. You could do the Lorraine tracks. You could do the Teddy tracks. You could hear Joy. You could hear, 
you know, the demos of They Don't Care About Us, Earth Song, you know, What About Us, you could hear the, the initial workings on, on Little Susie. You could hear things like that that took place in those, uh, in those sessions that, you know, just uh, have to be there. And, and, and the fact that, you know, you would think with Thriller 25, Bad 25, that Dangerous 25 would have been a no-brainer. Um, and there is a part of me, you know, this is the, the fan in me that holds out because Thriller 25 came out in its 26th year. So, you know, I'm kind of hoping that, that that maybe the powers that be at the estate, though I'm not holding my breath, and at, at Sony do kind of realise that there is, you know, a strong fan community that wants to to celebrate this more than just whacking, you know, the CD covers on T-shirts and calling that uh, a celebration or just putting the audio up with the uh, Dangerous album cover and calling that, you know, a celebration it's just not doing the art justice. And unfortunately, we've seen time and time again that, you know, guys like you, guys like anyone who's kind of in the fan community doing something to to help push and promote Michael's legacy are doing it far more convincingly and with more um, respect and authenticity than what's currently happening uh, with the people in charge of the estate and I just hope that they, uh, if not on this this project, which I don't think will get up, but that they do realise that, you know, there is a fan community that wants to celebrate, that wants to do it right and wants to see them respect the artists and respect the legacy of the music in a way that continues to be innovative and continues to reward people who have stood by Michael and, you know, reward people who are coming new to Michael and give them a rich and uh, uh, truly rewarding experience. Sam, do I want to jump to you next and we'll, we'll get this in the can? I have mixed feelings about it in the sense that, on the one hand, I don't think the Michael Jackson estate should ever do anything. I can't think of anything that I could they could ever do that would ever get my support. So that, there's that on the one hand. Then there's, on the other hand, you know, I, I, I know Michael's family, you know, love seeing him celebrated and it's, as, as do we, as, as do fans. So, you know, you're kind of torn between the two things. I would never support anything. I wouldn't buy anything John Branker or anyone is associated with. I wouldn't buy any products that they release. But there's so much there's so much to mine here because you know you've got like uh, Andy was saying that you've got the uh, uh, demos that they could release. You've got the Simpsons stuff that they could release. Uh, you know Lisa Risk Your Birthday, which has never been commercially released. They've got so many kind of tracks that Michael was recording for the album that they could release and video footage. I mean. But even then, they've done it in such a kind of slapdash way. I mean, what they've done the other day with the Who Is It video upload, how it, it must be even more difficult to do it wrong than it is to do it correctly. I, I upload videos to YouTube. It's not, it's not the most difficult thing in the world. It's a very easy process. How do they get it wrong? A multi-million dollar company, how do they upload it in such a way that it's framed on one side? So, you know, on the one hand, I'd rather they didn't touch it because I don't trust them to get it right. You know, I'd like to be positive about it. And, you know, the album is a magnificent album. It's a work of art, which deserves to be treated as a work of art. I don't trust the Michael Jackson estate to do anything to, uh, you know, bring any positive attention to it other than piss old fans off. You know, they're never going to recreate the magic. They're never going to do anything with heart and soul. 
I'm really just waiting for Prince Jackson to make some documentaries and, you know, I will fully support them. And I can imagine they'll be made with heart and soul and love and dedication. And, you know, that, well, that's what I'm waiting for. I, I, I don't trust John Branca. I don't trust anyone at the Michael Jackson estate. They shouldn't be touching his work, to be honest, I don't think. Well, I I think your comments are well taken, Samar. And... Um, and Andy as well. I think that, like, first of all, when, you, when, when we deal with the estate, because I've written extensively about the estate in my book, and um, and the releases, the posthumous releases, and the posthumous construction of Michael as well, because because it's more than just releases. It's it's building an idea of him. Or breaking posthumously. him down. <laughs> more, more accurately. Con- conversely, yes, that's what I argue. I argue they're not even just they're building, they're breaking him down and reconstructing something that isn't related really to the Michael Jackson we are discussing here. So the first thing I've always like, when I saw Dangerous 25 as the estate was going to celebrate it, I was not surprised because, you know, really, really we, we weren't surprised. We, we hoped, but it was kind of a fool's hope. Yeah. Because if they were going to give Dangerous what Dangerous deserves, it would have been something that would have been in a pipeline for a while now. It wouldn't just be something that we find out about in November. And so I was like, okay, so we know who we're dealing with and our expectations are low. And then from that vantage point, you know, the problem, I thought, you know, what's the problem here? So I'm an analytical type. I will think what's going on. And I thought, you know, is it, the lack of content, no, there's a wealth of amazing content. You know, me and my other half have been watching Lord of the Rings lately. That's a, I do that every year, a few times a year. <laughs> Complete special edition, extended box The pair. only editions. The only edition. And, and then, you know, you watch the whole films. And then if I'm in the mood, I watch all the films again with the commentary. Then I watch the special features. And I thought, there's enough content for dangerous for them to produce something like you know peter jackson's extended editions of lord of the rings what's lacking is appreciation what's lacking is a lack of artistic recognition there's a wealth of choices available for them and some of the choices are more economical because i know there's money is an issue as well some of the choices are more economical than others what sense do you mean it's economical because they've well, been telling us for years that they've made two billion dollars well, you know, I think that this is where it gets to the economical side, is that I think that because of all the things we've been talking about, how political, how complex, how comprehensive Dangerous is, there's a lack of understanding of it in general and a lack of, like, they, I don't think they think it's commercially viable. That's honestly what I, I think. They don't think they're going to get the return I've, on the investment that it would need. Elizabeth, I have a thought that I think will relate specifically to that, if I may step in, because that essentially is my thought. I personally think the appropriate thing to do is nothing. And for Dangerous 25, the market just simply isn't there. There's a lot of Michael Jackson product out there that is making billions of dollars. The Cirque du Soleil show, for example, the, the market's not interested. It's, going, it's falling on deaf ears. If they were to do the kind of releases we're talking about, they would literally go nowhere. And there's only so much magic they could create in the marketplace. And, you know, I think Bad 25, for example, was a great example of them doing exactly, not exactly what we're talking about, but doing 
a lot in celebration of the 25th anniversary. And Bad was a much bigger album than Dangerous was. And it went nowhere. A social media campaign is entirely appropriate. I think the merchandising move is very bizarre and and, and a bit, uh, I don't know what the word is, but kind of low and cheap. Um, Amateur. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, it, you know, it's I think it's appropriate. I think I think what we're feeling here, what I'm sensing here, is they've messed up so bad over the last six years when on the rare occasion they make an appropriate move, we can't even give them credit for that. I think in the scheme of things it's very appropriate. Is that but from the more marketing think... side, James, and not the artistic side? <laughs> Yes, yes, because Dangerous 25 deserves celebrated. It deserves everything you guys are talking about. It just doesn't deserve to fall on deaf ears, and that's what would happen in 2016. Absolutely. Well, just, just who says we got to celebrate the number 25? Big deal. We'll celebrate 30. We'll celebrate 50. We have the rest of our lives ahead of 55. us. Yeah, uh, look, James, to, your, to, to your point, I think, um, you know, Definitely, you know, Bad 25 was probably their most concerted effort. And I'm not sure what the sales figures are on that, but I'm sure they probably felt underwhelmed. You can understand a hesitance to, to put any more product out. You could do it digitally and there's really no, no uh, physical product needing to be produced and it could be a quick and simple and you're, you're talking directly uh, to, to your own consumer. You could have a new album on iTunes that people could download. But if you look at what Paul McCartney's just done with his back catalogue, you know, beautifully done, his thoughts, now obviously you can't get Michael's thoughts from, from today, but you could get the people working with him writing the liner notes, stuff like that. So I think it's, it's doable, but I also think there has to be a, a, a check of the expectations in the fan community that Dangerous 25 isn't going to hit number one if they do release something. Yeah. Those days, in all in in all honesty, are uh, are gone. You know, it'll be a rarity to see a Michael Jackson album at a number one position. But that doesn't mean that the art shouldn't be celebrated. It's that balance. If if you just look at it from a purely commercial point of view, is what's going to build the brand, what's going to give a commercial return, and potentially there's a way of satisfying both. But I think if if fans' expectations are that if they did release a Dangerous Twenty Five that it would automatically go to number one, then I think that's completely off the mark. We've gotten so much in the last seven years, and even before that, really the last 10 years. That, and I'm not talking about releases from the estate because we didn't really get much from them, to be honest. But the community, we have literally raped and violated the catalog of unreleased material. And I don't know what, I don't know what fans expect. Like... We got the rest of our lives ahead of us. What? 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 If there's if Dangerous Twenty Five, what's bad? What's bad? Thirty gonna look like? What's bad? Forty gonna look like? What's bad? Fifty gonna look like? There's nothing left. And you know, I think we have pretty much. When we talk about what we want to see on a Dangerous Twenty Five release, we don't mention all the stuff we've already had and forgotten about because we didn't really appreciate it. What about all the Brian Laurent tracks that have leaked? Why isn't anyone asking for that? What about you know? People want to they look at these track listings and they want to see more, 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 more stuff they don't already have. We already have it all for the most part, not all of this, but we got plenty of it. We should not be hungry for more material. We really should not be. We should be hungry for 
appropriately released material that makes an impact on new generations of Michael Jackson fans. And we saw that beautiful video that was released a few weeks ago by uh, the Kids React To people. Oh, yeah. We got this generation covered. Let's take the Disney philosophy. Let's release this Pinocchio to the next set of kids in a way that'll be make a bigger impact. The market will be hungrier for it. Michael Jackson's just a little played out at the moment as far as mainstream audiences are concerned. I'm not talking about earning dollars. I'm talking about reinforcing the legend that he is to new generations. Really brilliant point. You know, you both of you have made, like all of you have made fantastic points, actually. And I think it's a very complex, it's more complex than I think any of us can really get our even heads around. Like, I know I can't exactly say what's the right thing to do. But I do know there's there's two things you mentioned that are really important. First of all, there has been an abuse of the catalogue by the fan community. And, you know, we've all heard tracks that have not been released um, properly and that is an issue and they are really commonly available and you know that is that is a conundrum for us to think about you know for the most part I don't go looking for them but there was a time when I did a lot I was always looking for new music and that has devalued the product to some extent and that's important for us to to be aware of and that we do have responsibilities of our own in this but there's another thing is that who is responsible for celebrating dangerous at 25 or dangerous at any time, if not the community themselves? Like I believe that this kind of the grassroots stuff, this amazing MJ cast podcast, all of the fan community we have, there's a really amazing content creators. And I do think perhaps it's better if, you know, I celebrated dangerous 25 with an online academic course for people to take and analysis is dangerous and its impact so people want to rise about it but I think that it's important for us to think about who do you want the responsibility to fall on does it is it the estates or is it us and you know is a release really the best way because you don't celebrate Shakespeare's centenaries with releases of Shakespeare there's tons of them they celebrate it with symposiums and gatherings and there's other ways to celebrate anniversaries and it doesn't have to just be release of material but there doesn't seem to be any thought about that that's beautifully stated you're exactly right you're exactly right it doesn't have to be a commercial initiative and uh we're doing it right now and we're doing a beautiful job at it i think i hope i hope (laughs) the the, the one one thing i'd like to say though i would you know which is always a bit of a problem for me is that people who were very close to michael and I'm thinking specifically about his family. If they're not involved, I find it very, very difficult. Not I find it very difficult to support any project because I can't imagine anyone knowing what his mindset was, especially more than Janet Jackson, because Dangerous is so closely, I think, so closely associated with her and what she was doing with Rhythm Nation. And it it does mirror some of the work that she was doing and clearly conversations that they were having, you know, political views that they both share. They were very, very close with each other at that period. And without her being involved, without her, I mean, if, she, if the family put together a documentary and kind of talked about, you know, the stuff we talked about in the academia project videos, uh, you know, like the black and white stuff, if they talked about that, that would be an incredible product. Sorry, not so, so much of a product. It could be a documentary. It could be a televised thing. But 
it would be a, a legitimate and kind of genuine uh, response to uh, celebrating the 25th anniversary of the album. I don't think uploading Who Is It to YouTube is is going to do anyone any favours. You know, Michael Jackson was, you know, he owned the Beatles catalogue when the Beatles did their antho- anthology albums, which were a massive undertaking, a massive project, incredibly successful, and really did bring the Beatles back into the, you know, into the, into the charts because they had like hit singles on the back of that. And the album stayed in the top 10 for years. So there is, there is something in that, but I, uh, documentary, but maybe, it's, uh, it's got to be legitimate. It's, it's got to be from the right people. I think it's only been seven years from the last major project. Like you're talking about, this is it. We can't be doing this every four years. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just, it's too, it's too much too soon and it's going to waste. And I think you're absolutely right. That project is beautiful, but it, it's it's going to go. No one cares right now, other other than us, <laughs> and a few. And there's many of us. There's probably a million or more of us. And we're, I mean, I love all of us, and uh, we're doing it on our own. And I think I agree with you, Samar. I do not trust, at least not in the first few years, the decision making. Um, as far as commercial releases go by the state, I think the 10 project deal was a huge mistake. And I'm not even talking about just from a business perspective, you've got a very limited catalog and you just signed it away in a seven year period. And what about the next 60 years or the rest of our lives, the rest of the kids' lives? You've literally just, for, please forgive this probably very sexist term, hoarded out. Well, that, um, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly the what highest. To the highest bidder, and it's used up in seven years. Not that the fans care, because we've already done it by bootlegging. Which I, I'm I'm the first one to download a leaked track, so hold that against <laughs> me, please. Yeah, you probably don't. Um, but I just don't know what what we expect. I think the best thing to do is just relax and 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 just know that in ten or fifteen years from now, the world will be celebrating. I hope, if managed properly, we'll be celebrating Michael Jackson in a in a in a in a new exciting way, just like Beatles anthology, and then it'll quiet down for a while, and then it'll come back again. Beatles is a I've, great example. I've got to say though, James, that uh, with with Dangerous and the content of Dangerous, it's all very topical at the moment. So, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement is very much now, and you know MJ passing references to the Black Panthers in the Black and White video. Michael making reference to the black, you know, the uh, uh, student nonviolent coordinating committee, the sister party to the Black Panthers uh, during his Super Bowl performance. That's all very topical. And, you know, remember the time filming that depicting Africa, royal Africa, which no one else has ever done since then. I think politically it would be it's a good moment to strike while that, that particular iron is hot where people are talking about those topics and. MJ could be celebrated for those things, but maybe maybe you're right. I mean, online, I'm not averse to online kind of promotions. I just, I don't think, like I said, I don't think uploading one video a week to YouTube of these rare videos, like Who Is It, which we've all seen a million times, is going to do anyone any, any favours. It's got to be, there's got to be care and affection and love for those projects. To, to, to a degree, Spike Lee, to a degree, did it. Again, I don't think he had full editorial control and you know, they didn't do really justice to the albums he was depicting. But I think content-wise, I think there's a lot to be said for Dangerous to be celebrated now in the present climate, especially with, with what's happened in America recently. 
yeah, I I accept that physical release nowadays isn't really, you know, viable. What annoys me the most is the whole obsession with off-the-wall thriller bad, the Quincy stuff. It's a bit insulting or dangerous, like, you know, we'll do Thriller 25, we'll do, which was obviously when Michael's alive, we'll do Bad 25, and then it's, oh, it's only dangerous now. You know, Quincy wasn't involved, we won't give it the recognition, it's not a real Spike Lee album, you know, we won't make a fuss, it's only dangerous, and, you know, God knows what it'll be like in with history. I just think it's a bit, what I don't like is the fact that they, there's such a focus on those three Quincy albums, and, you know, once Michael gets executive, you know, powers over production on Dangerous, it's it's a bit, you know, the, that recognition isn't there, and that's my biggest issue. And another strange one is the fact that they do a off-the-wall documentary and repackage, you know, the off-the-wall album nine months before the Dangerous 25 anniversary. Why would you do that? It's almost like, you know, what, where was the timing with the Spike Lee off-the-wall documentary? Nine months before the danger, surely danger should get that focus in 2016 and not off the wall, the Spike Lee stuff, the pointless repackaging of, I mean, off the, that off the wall reissue didn't even have any you know demos on it. It was just literally the same album plus the DVD of the Spike Lee documentary. I think, I think they could have, I would love to see, I have to admit, what well, we've got, we've got the demos of me on YouTube from, from Dangerous. You've got Monkey Business, um, you've got most of the Loren tracks. Uh, For All Time was obviously released for some reason again on Thriller 25, even though it was actually written for Dangerous. So you've got, you've got a lot of stuff on YouTube in terms of demos from Dangerous, and fans are lucky, you know, from that aspect. But I, I think the Dangerous chapter in my book is the longest. It's, it was a two-year recording process. And obviously, the documentaries we've seen on Off the Wall and uh, Bad, you know, you, that's the, the Quincy production. I mean, we need, I would like to see a documentary on, you know, Riley and, you know, Michael becoming an executive producer. I want to see that. I don't want to see, well, obviously I do, but it's, it's the, the Quincy documentaries. We want to see Michael, you know, behind the scenes doing Dangerous. Well, I do. <laughs> So do I just I. think, yeah, I think in terms of, I, I want to see more behind-the-scenes footage of, you know, the making of Dangerous because the Quincy stuff is readily available, and that's why I gave Dangerous History, Blood on the Dance, and Invincible such focus in my book because the off-the-wall thriller, bad stuff, I couldn't find much stuff out there, you know, even years of research that was particularly new, and a lot of people say, you know, my book really gets into it with Dangerous because that's where I started uncovering new material. I think they could do the same with a documentary. So yeah, it's, it's the recognition bit. It's not a Quincy album, you know, and, and Spike Lee, oh, I'd like to think, wouldn't direct a Dangerous documentary. I think I don't think he'd be the right sort of guy for that. James, I think you, you made a really um, salient point, whereas this, you know, as fans, we kind of have this panicked hunger that we worry that if we don't get the stuff now, we may never get it. And, you know, that there is hopefully a, a long-term game at play. It's just when you feel that there isn't a game at play at all, short-term, long-term, mid-term, that you do kind of, you know, your, your, your panic starvation mentality kind of kicks in. But I think you make a good point. You know, uh, unfortunately, that you know, Michael, in a sense, and then the estate, 
So Michael with uh, Thriller 25 and the estate with Bad 25 kind of set up the 25th anniversary as being an important one. Whether or not that precludes, you know, releasing a, a dangerous album in f- another five years or seven years or just whenever to celebrate it, you know, I think is, is a fair point. And I think that's, you know, one of the, the hard parts as us as fans is, you know, there's the side of me that wants to hear everything ever recorded. And then there's the side of me that only wants to uh, that only wants the good quality stuff released. And if that's only one more song, then let that be one more song. You know, I, I would rather hear that than hear everything they recorded for Thriller, because a lot of that stuff doesn't cut it compared to what eventually ended up on Thriller. And I think there's another side to us as fans where we want everything Michael Jackson does to be validated with a lot of attention and awareness and extravaganza. And Michael set us up for that, really. Um, And Bad 25 was that response. They, I I am, I mean, I ran an entire campaign with uh, friends of mine and all of you folks, honestly, most of you, I'm sure hopefully all of you supported it, against, essentially against the estate, if I may state it bluntly. So I, I am not a fan of the estate, but you've got to be able to look at things rationally and realize in hindsight, cause I didn't at the time that they really did bad 25 pretty correctly. The VHS thing is a major flawed point. And there's probably, there's always gonna be creative differences. I have creative differences with Michael's decisions a lot of times, but they did it right. And we hate it for the most part because no one gave a shit, pardon the French, but it's because they miss judged the market and it's it's in 2009 they assessed what the michael jackson market might look like apparently they did that and they believed they could sign the biggest record deal in history based on that judgment and they did not count on that being on it being a short-term quote-unquote fad that would be dead by the time bad 25 came in 2012 and and even more dead by the time Escape came out, and even more dead by the time Off the Wall came out, which led me to the belief, or leads me to the belief, that they didn't make a misjudgment. They're probably pretty good analysts. They knew exactly what the market would look like, and and it was a deal designed to secure the catalog. That $250 million had nothing to do with Michael Jackson's recorded music. And if you look at the press release or the statements from the deal that... uh, Sony just closed on a few few months ago. They even talk about the $750 million includes a discounted, is, is discounted to include a prepayment made in a previous arrangement. The previous arrangement is the record deal. There was no intent to make any of these releases a $250 million venture, ever. This is just my speculation. Please don't hold it against me if I'm completely off base. But I don't think Michael Jackson's even a signed act right now. Off the Wall was released. Literally, I believe it was two and a half weeks later, something like that, just days later. The deal was signed for the catalog acquisition. acquisition. So that explains a lot of what we're talking about here. After Bad 25, they said, we're done with the anniversaries. And then after Escape, they said, we're done with the unreleased material. And, and here we are. And hopefully... They're going to adopt a strategy in which they'll let it sit and let the market develop a hunger, and then they'll come back and they'll do it the right way, hopefully. 
So James, sorry. So the it was a seven-year deal, was it, with Sony, wasn't it? If I might remember correctly. Yep, and off the wall would be seven years. So they're probably out of contract now. Is that what you're saying? I don't believe Michael Jackson. I don't believe there's currently a contract in place to release any Michael Jackson material. Obviously, Sony probably holds the. We don't know the details, but Sony probably holds the masters for all the released albums for some period of time. So if they were going to be released, they would have to be released through Sony. But uh, And of course, Sony probably has the rights to put them back into production for some period of time. Well, John, John um, Baker claims that my, uh, the Michael Jackson estate owns MyJack, the publishing catalog, right? Right, right. But that's different than the master rights to, a, to an album. Right, so, okay. Yeah, so, uh, for example, you know, uh, the... the Sony Sony owned the masters to Michael's releases um, till 2011. So if Michael wanted to do Thriller 25, for example, even though he wasn't signed for any new albums with Sony, if he wanted to do Thriller 25, the only company that could release Thriller would have been Sony because they right. had the master rights. Cool. So, yeah. so it's that's probably still the case for some period of time for albums like Dangerous. Yeah, I, I like I said, I I, I don't believe. I don't believe they ever truly intended to earn $250 million off those releases because they never did. It just didn't happen. It probably didn't even come close. There's no way. And I, I, I do believe it was an orchestrated PR sort of move to sort of get an influx of cash seven years ago, six years ago, with a pre-negotiated arrangement that we would then sell the half of Sony ATV to Sony following the completion of that contract and sure enough right after off the wall that deal was made sold it. well that's interesting because you know there's that interview where john branker is talking on 60 minutes and he's interviewed about the ownership of uh sony atv 50 percent ownership and he says explicitly we will not sell it we don't sell assets so what you're saying is that he already knew he was going to sell it when he gave that interview i'm, I'm definitely aware of that interview yeah yeah, going back to the Masters, um, Michael thought that was one of the issues after Invincible because Michael thought he was going to get his licenses, uh, his Masters back. And it turns out that they would not revert back to him until 2009-10, hence why that deal was signed in 2010, because that's when the Masters deal ended. So you've got um, you've got number ones, the Bucharest DVD, um, the Ultimate Collection, King of Pop, all those, and Thriller 25 were released without... Well, if Michael didn't want it to, they had no control because, like the point James made, um, yeah, Sony had the masters, they could do what they want with the catalogue. And Thriller 25 was a, a Sony idea, not a Michael idea. Awesome. That's that was... something that we mentioned that I think is so important is that there's a sense of, like, I call it late work, because it's something people use, it's a term they use for Shakespeare's later stuff. And there's a definite divide between the way that we're being presented with early works, which is the Quincy Jones stuff, the bad, the thriller, the off the wall, and the late works, which is, yeah. you know, dangerous, um, history, um, the blood of dance floor, and invincible. I think the later work, there's a narrative of decline, unfortunately. This is a narrative mm. that's been around in the press, in the public. You talk to an average person, not a very strong Michael Jackson fan, they'll tell you, oh, it all went downhill after 
such and such album. You've hit the nail and, on the head. And, and unfortunately, what's happened is because that narrative decline of decline is so strong, it's difficult for you for us to kind of um, to sell. You know, the, the, the truth is it was kind of okay when we were like in the bad territory and the thriller territory and off the wall. But now we're moving into things like Dangerous and History and of, um, Blood on the Dance Floor and Invincible. And these are awkward albums. These are con- controversial albums. These are topical and political albums. And I think personally that it's not just the social, uh, the economic stuff. It's not just the you know, the the way the fans have treated the, the, the catalogue, I think it does have a lot to do with this perception that no one really wants that. Like, it's not as good as the early stuff. And it's difficult to erode, you know, my academic essays on Invincible are, like, the only ones. And, like, and it's a big thing I've been pushing to try and get people to write critically and academically about Michael's late work and it is really a challenge Mike's book was you know is the book really for me that I think has really kind of gone he Mike, you know he went so in detail with the later stuff which I love but Mike your book came out this year last year this year yeah in April yeah okay so there we go <laughs> how many years later you know so yeah. yeah so there's a bigger problem or bigger, bigger issue here, and it's the narrative of decline that's strong. Yeah, but I agree. It, history's Michael's ahead. most personal album, and Blood on the Dance Floor is his darkest album. Well, not album, you know, Blood on the Well, it is an album, but you know, the five songs, etc. But like you said, an element of decline. Yet there's so much there, as we know, with history, blood. I I imagine for you folks, it's probably a lot easier to write about the later stuff because there's a lot more depth there, right? No, I mean, not there's at all. <laughs> not really? You um, Re- to, wow. I had to do. I had to basically like with uh, off the wall, thrill and bad. There was a lot of stuff already out there. Um, you know, to give you a base. Um, in particular, blow on the dance and invincible. I had to start from scratch. You know, I had to do same here. All that from scratch. <laughs> um, to make it that up. surprises. That surprised to me. Make it all up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that that was tremendously difficult. Blood on the dance floor was ridiculously difficult. I guess perhaps what I mean is, I guess there's a lot more to analyze. I think in the later materials, and and maybe I confused yeah. the two. Yeah, because there's so much an, an analysis book as such. So mine was more factual and um, na- you know narrative and continuation and timeline, and so it was yeah that was <laughs> ridiculously difficult to do, but. We really appreciate that effort of really starting that on the ground floor for everyone to follow yeah. because, yeah, they were some of the well, most incredible you. chapters. Right.
Michael Jackson, dangerous. Hey, this is Taj Jackson of 3T, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. So, moving on to the next topic, and uh, we're nearing the sort of the end of this discussion was dangerous style. I think, uh, I think, was it. Elizabeth, you were saying before that Dangerous was, or someone was saying before that Dangerous was sort of the most cohesive um, era. And I think a big part of that was the Dangerous style. There was the new era, the new album, new videos, a new tour, new styles. What were some of Michael's most iconic stylistic moments from Dangerous and your favourites? I love the fencing outfit. You know, he loved yeah. this Renaissance Obviously, I have, you know, I love The King of Star and I've read in depth and I've written about The King of Star. So Michael Jackson's costume is very powerful. And at first I saw, you know, he had that um, leotard. It kind of hooks up at the back. The gold one. The gold one. There's a black yeah. one as well. Yeah. And it was just a, just the oddest thing to see this man in this like leotard with jeans and dancing. And it was, but it's so attention grabbing. And the more... I read about the leotard. Well, it's not a leotard, it's a fencing. It's a, it's a fencing style. You've seen fencing, like yep. in the Olympics and yep. things. That's it. It's Jamin's um, favourite costume, I believe, if I remember correctly. Ah. <laughs> I'm joking. <Interesting>. <laughs> but he, what I love about it is that he was unafraid to take really um, the, the, the I, in iconography of the aristocracy you know, fencing is is elite. That's why Michael chose so many of these styles: the military jackets, the pearl, the pearlescent jacket from the Grammy Awards uh, speech, which Michael was, you know, Michael's buried in a similar jacket to that. Was was some of the most, you know, inventive pieces of costume he ever wore. And the stories behind those pieces are really interesting too. And I love that in this period of time, he was really just going for like whatever, whatever inspired him, no matter how obscure the reference was. And I like, I really loved that about his style in the Dangerous Era. One of the styles that often gets sort of overlooked is the sort of slick back hair and wife beater and in the closet. Yeah, <laughs> so oh, yeah, yeah. That's when does Michael have rock that style in any other? I, there might, am I forgetting something? Or no. I think that's a very unique look in that video. Um, and yeah, I have to say the outfit for the jam opener dangerous tour is amazing. I think which one, the black one or the, the no, blue the shiny silvery, yeah, the blue 
pe- I call it the sort of like peacock jacket. It's got all the colours in it. Yeah, I think, and obviously with the aviators and taking them off slowly, I think that look was Michael sort of a very high peak. High peak, yes. Yeah. Very iconic, isn't it? That um, that jacket is, yeah, I do like that Michael jacket. That is a because jacket. Obviously, Sam made an interesting point about, um, you know, Michael, not a decline, but, you know, but you have to remember that Dangerous was the most international album that Michael released. So, you know, in, in that sense, that was where Michael, Super Bowl, I always think was the very peak because of obviously what happened a few months later. I think at Super Bowl, Michael Jackson was the biggest pop star in the world, possibly ever, most famous person in the world. And I think Super Bowl, January 93 was the very peak. So star-wise, I always thought, I've got to be honest, I, I was slightly drifting away from him star-wise there. Um, there, I mean, the the jam intro was fantastic. Uh, did have all of you guys seen him in concert? Did you ever see him on the Dangerous tour? Any of you guys? Not the Dangerous no. tour. Right, right, right. So too small. The, 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 yeah, well, <laughs> the anticipation. You've got to understand how how he was able to build the anticipation. We loved him anyway. Then you know you'd go and see him in concert. You'd wait hours and hours. You'd go through the support acts. Then the video would kick in the company, the Barana video, the Brace Yourself video, and it would be pitch black on the stadium. It would be blasting out. The atmosphere would be so heightened and so kind of, you could feel the excitement in the end. Suddenly, he'd pop out of the stage, and he stood there for about five minutes, or it felt like five minutes, and the crowd was just going ballistic. There, you know, you hadn't even heard any music yet. He hadn't even said anything. And he stood there like a mannequin, didn't move. And then, you know, similar to the... Uh, intro to the uh, victory tour opening where the brothers all stand together and they all take off their sunglasses very slowly he mimicked that he, you know he copied that and did it again and every movement every time he turned his head the crowd went mental jacket that jacket is fantastic there were a, a few missteps i think in the uh, in the tour wardrobe that 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 year i remember the hideous blue trousers he wore during working <laughs> day and night well they they're kind of waterproof trousers the jacket was fantastic, though, but the trousers were... Yeah. Um, and also, what, what's quite interesting, if you hadn't seen him in concert, it, you could never really kind of replicate this on uh, video, is a jacket he wore during Heal the World in concert. And if you watch it on the Bucharest show or if you watch it on YouTube, wherever, it comes across as a very kind of dull grey jacket. But what you don't notice, which you do notice when you're at the concert, is it's reflective. So what you see when you're actually at the concert is that all the lights that are hitting that jacket are rebounding off it. So as you're watching Michael on stage, he's literally glowing uh, during Heal the World, which you can't, for whatever reason, the TV never is able, is not able to capture that. Uh, I don't know what, why that is and why I can't do that. Um, it was bright white to me. <laughs> was there, it? Was some, there were a couple yeah. of shots that it was bright, reflective. Bright, bright. So where right, we were standing, yeah. yeah, where we were standing, he was literally glowing. And I thought that was pretty fantastic. Again, who is it? He looked incredible in a in just a, like a normal suit where he's not w- dressed like a superhero. I just liked seeing him, seeing him in kind of normal surroundings. And there was also one event I remember. It would have been the MTV meeting, Meet Michael MTV thing, where he's having this massive dinner with, I think Naomi Campbell's on the table with them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 
And he's dressed in a, I think he's wearing black trousers, black shirt, and he's got those kind of epi- red epaulets on his shoulders. And he's wearing those uh, Wayfarer Ray-Bans. And he just looks a million dollars that night as well. That was a really good era for him. But yeah, he was starting to kind of lose us with the kind of long white shirts and the, you know, black pants, which were becoming more and more of a trademark. And it wasn't, wasn't what we were wearing in London back then. <laughs> I thought the black or white sort of white shirt thing worked amazingly. Maybe just in that video, but I think he replicated it so often after that. So it was in the Will, Will You Be There video, obviously in the performance when he did Will You Be There. And then in Give It To Me, he wore similar as well. And it, it was just, you were seeing him like that so often. And so Will You yeah. Be There on stage as well? I thought, it, yeah. Okay, okay. It's funny also when, you know, we talk about a new decade and how Michael wanted to kind of represent himself. And there are certain touch points back to the 80s. So, you know, when we first see him in black or white, he's ditched the glove, but he's replaced it with a with an arm brace. You know, the, the fedora's back. It's interesting that he's, he's almost conscious of his trademark looks, but, but is, again, wanting to kind of reinvent them, push them forwards, change them up a little bit. For me, I hated the gold lame fencing bodysuit look. Yeah, I loved that thing. <laughs> to me, well, to me, it, it smacked... Uh, cosine, too, cosine. Yeah, it smacked too much like Madonna. Right. I felt like I was watching Madonna from a Blonde Ambition tour, and I just couldn't get over that. Um, I, I much preferred it, in, interestingly enough, in the Super Bowl, where it's just the top. He hasn't got the little you know, speedo kind of look over, over, the, over the leather pants. But I agree. I mean, in the closet, hands down, best look. And uh, who is it as well? Just seeing him in a suit that you, you, you kind of just wanted to go, yeah, there's, there's cool Mike. That's, that's kind of someone who you want to emulate that look a little bit. It was an interesting era. I mean, I don't know if anyone can pull off a, uh, an Egyptian outfit skirt over black leather pants. <laughs> but uh yeah it was definitely an interesting time and just to see his style evolve a little bit more as well he moved away you know his costume in the early and i don't i don't really think it's it's clothes i think it's costume and that's important to make that distinction you know when michael jackson dresses he dresses to perform a character for us so none of it is really, you know, his personal clothing was always really kind of the same, like monotonous, like red, t- red shirt, black trousers, you know, kind of. But these were costumes. And in the early in his career, his costumes were really about, you know, copying him. You know, I, even I have like the Pepsi commercial jacket. Like everybody I know has like a thriller jacket. It was clothing we could emulate. And it was like that on purpose, the Letterman jackets. You know, really a style that you could you could get a glove, you could wear one, you could you have your hair like that, you could, and it was definitely a sense that you could emulate him for fun, and that was part of the appeal. But in Dangerous, he just moved away from that. I think he really moved away from a style that could be easily emulated by the audience to just dis- maybe dis- draw some distinctions between now and then. Like, yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not entirely like bad, Michael or beat it Michael I'm this is something different this is more of my my artistic self-expression he's definitely not wearing clothes anymore that we can easily copy yeah I I agree completely I think he sort of went to sort of this when we talk about the stage costume he sort of I think he left a lot of the sort of that Broadway style costuming behind 
And I think maybe to the to the point some of you folks have made about the lip syncing thing and George Michael coming out with a sort of more natural performance. I, I think he's sort of honing in with that that white and black outfit on a on a more natural. Just this is my this is me, Michael the creative, and this is what I wear. But I think in terms of physicality, I think the most unique beginning we see from Michael is in terms of androgyny. And I think a lot of it is a byproduct, of course, of his skin condition and, uh, you know, his scalp injury, of course, having to wear extensions and wigs and whatever. But, uh, you know, Michael definitely laid on a, began with Dangerous, a level of androgyny that he sort of played with for the rest of his career. And, uh, um, you know, I, I hate to bring up this point again, and, and it definitely doesn't warrant a lot of discussion, but, you know, we don't necessarily talk about uh, what effect that had on his image as fans. And, and, and Michael Jackson is a straight man, but we really don't talk about how he is the victim of homophobia. And he's probably the single greatest victim of homophobia ever in pop, yet, ironically, he's a completely and totally straight man. And uh, a lot of that, I think, was a product of the image he molded for himself with that androgynous style from that era. You're wow. completely correct. You're completely correct, James. You know, I do write about it. And some other people have, like, other authors, academics have written about this. And they get a lot of steam from the fans. This is what I've noticed. Like, academics who try and write about Michael's androgyny, queer theory. There's an author called Francesca Royster who's written about, you know, queer acts and eccentric city in the, in the pop era. And they've, we've written, people are writing about it, and they're trying to get into this concept. Michael is incredible in terms of his use of, like, dandyism, queer culture, you know, he, the way he uses fashion, the way he uses, even he talks about, even in his book, in Moonwalk, uh, Moonwalk about seeing a drag queen and then have, and like finding it, like, um, astonishing that she was the he, like, and that how it kind of, just transformed his perception of, and Michael's always using everything, the way he dressed his, uh, how he did his makeup, how he did his eyebrows. He didn't draw distinctions between what was feminine and masculine, you know, and what's happened is that this is something about Michael Jackson I think needs to be really embraced because it's one of the things that make him so iconic and unique. But Bowie similarly has androgyny, you know, the late, David Bowie, but he doesn't get the same level of stick for it. And that's the part that is always difficult to understand. Bowie was very androgynous and he he was embraced for that. So it's just, you know, it's just a question to throw back into, you know, into the audio into the discussion group. You know, what you know yeah, I think it's quite easy to understand with the Bowie thing actually, because it's clearly race-based, because you know, there's an idea that we talked about it on previous shows when I've been on about how Michael would get criticized for his music not being black enough as soon as the hip hop movement took place. And, like, you know, you'd have white authors saying, Oh, well, suddenly he's not black and Prince, Prince is not black. These guys are like actually black. This is what black culture is. And it was like, Well, no, it's multifaceted. And, you know, what, what uh, heavy rock groups were doing or the kind of glam rock groups were doing, you know, like I mentioned, Poison and uh, Guns N' Roses and, uh, you know, the groups around that period, all of those guys were wearing uh, makeup, literally all of them, all were wearing eyeliner, all of them had long hair, 
suddenly as soon as Prince does it or Michael Jackson does it, uh, you know, they get seen slightly differently. It distances them from their race uh, in the press's eyes. Um, and they're held up to different standards. Uh, and, you know, when David Bowie passed away, I, I, I saw it everywhere. He was being celebrated for all of his differences. And he was, all of his differences are he was a hero for all of these people and et cetera, et cetera. And whereas Michael was criticized for all of these kind of eccentricities or change differences, I should say, um, which is completely unfair. And a, a lot of that is race-based in the sense that a black man can only be one particular thing. He can't be multifaceted, mm. multidimensional. Um, similarly, you know, you get it now with Beyonce, bless her, uh, has to go through the same stuff. Whereas, you know, she, if she has blonde, if Beyonce dyes her hair blonde, suddenly she, you know, she hates black people. But if Madonna, you know, uh, 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 perms her hair or Liz Hurley, uh, you know, plumps her lips up with collagen or one of them adopts, you get it throughout Michael's career. When Michael Jackson, you know, they, they look at his children, oh, well, he hated black people, he hated being black. Name every single Hollywood celebrity, you know, Nicole Kidman's got black child, Sandra Bullock's got black child, Steven Spielberg's got black child, Tom Cruise's got black children. They don't hate being white. It's the same standards never apply to those Hollywood stars as apply to Michael because there is an inbuilt racism in kind of Hollywood press and the mainstream press. Very wow. well said. Very well said. All just of very you very well, well said. Thank you so much. I love how just even from style and iconic moments from his style in that era, we've been able to touch on so many deeper things. It's incredible. Just with the um, open shirts and the T-shirt and the jeans, I always sort of drew comparison with what sort of, I guess, grunge and some of the rock people wearing. Like Slash was not wearing dissimilar stuff really. Uh, Guns N' Roses, Nirvana, they would sort of the open shirts, they'd be flannel shirts instead of a nice silk shirt maybe. But I always sort of had that in comparison. It was sort of Michael's version. And that was something that I could and sometimes still to do, still sort of do is have like an open shirt over a T-shirt and, and jeans or pants. That was one of the easiest like styles for me to copy especially on a budget growing up. <laughs> <laughs> so next we're going to be talking about, you've, you've shared so many wonderful moments and memories of the era, but I want to go around and hear just one, your number one standout moment from the dangerous era. Oh, wow. Sam? Oh, this is tough. Yeah, this is very, very tough because, you know, I saw him in concert. Yes. Uh, three. I went to three gigs, uh, three shows, I beg your pardon. And then I also went to the Dorchester and we stood outside and kind of saw him throwing pillowcases down at us. But honestly, even though I saw him and enjoyed the shows and they were all magnificent, my standout is going to be the uh, uh, live radio broadcast only because it was probably the last ever moment that kind of encapsulated that old world because I remember we, a couple of years ago, Taj Jackson, we had myself and Charlie had dinner with Taj Jackson. We were talking about thriller with him and saying how. And I was trying to explain to Charlie, who's so much younger than I am, that when the thriller video came out, suddenly it was like the world had changed. <clears throat> it had gone from black and white to color. Suddenly, we'd moved into a new dimension. And that Bucharest thing is there's one foot in the past and one foot in the future with that because clearly they were moving to FM, but try, try telling this to kids now. Oh yeah, we stayed up and, you know, 
listen to a radio broadcast of a concert which we couldn't <laughs> see which we couldn't see and you know we had no knowledge of whether it was going to happen because 10 minutes prior to the show there was stories that he wasn't going to make it on stage they won't believe you i mean look at the digital content they have now and they have access to like live tv on their telephones all the time they'd, they'd laugh they'd laugh at you it's like listening to your old wireless isn't it it's like such an old traditional old school thing to do but because of that and because it still kind of had one foot in the kind of present i really i really cherished that moment because i was such a massive fan and like q you said you know when you were recording it on vhs you were going to have a full Michael Jackson concert, which we'd never had before never. on VHS. I was going to have the same on radio and I would be able to carry it, play my Walkman and listen to it wherever I went. So God, it sounded so good on the radio too, didn't it? It did. It really did. <laughs> it's not just me then. So uh, oh. yeah, it was, that was the one standout moment because it was, there's something quite magical about radio anyway, but when you're listening to it about 12 o'clock at night, live from Bucharest, knowing the history of like Eastern Europe and what they were going through and what the Romanians had been going through. And then Michael turned up like a real life superhero, you know, to play this concert. I think, am I imagining it? This was a free show. I know the Brunei show was free. Was this, I'm, I'm not sure if this was a free show or not. Sure. I can't remember. But it might so. well have been. But again, it was 120,000 people. He turned up like, like I said, like a superhero, almost as a kind of political figure of some sort and just you know turned turned on an incredible show that night and uh yeah so it's that it was just staying up to listen to that concert love it andy how about yours uh for me it's gonna sound really simple but pressing play dude that's so cool i just you know just hearing that after you know waiting to, to hear what Michael was going to deliver and to hear a new album. And just, you know, for me, that, that smashing window, that, that breaking glass that kicks off the album, to me is like the shattering of all expectations. And it's kind of like, you know, a sonic cue to say, okay, whatever you're expecting, it, it's going to be broken away and just give yourself into it. And, um, yeah, just, just hearing the album for the first time, it's, it was just an amazing experience. Simple things. There we are. Brilliant. How about Mr. Mike? I've got three things in mind. <laughs> oh, this is going to be tough for you then to say just one. <laughs> oh, you're doing this to me, are you? <laughs> Did they all happen um, at the same time, maybe? Can you link it together? I, I suppose I could choose one, elaborate on that, and then briefly, just in one sentence, say what the other two were. <laughs> I'm going to go with... The split with Quincy Jones because it was the gateway to the remainder of Michael's career. Obviously, Dangerous was Michael's first album where he was his executive producer. And then obviously following on from that history, Blow on the Dance were Invincible. So I would say the most significant moment for me is the split with Quincy and Dangerous being such a different album to what it would have been like had Quincy been uh, producing that album so I'm going I'm to go with that moment because I think it's very significant and a lot a lot of people you hear again like we said the the whole off the wall thriller bad is the greatest and everything else disregarded a lot of people say oh Michael made a mistake in splitting up with Quincy Jones because it was Michael's decision but 
Michael wanted to fly the nest for the, you know, you saw that in bad, you know, what was happening in the studio. There were loggerheads at times because Michael wanted to express his independence. So I, I think it was the right decision. Um, you know, Michael was ready to be independent and bring the likes of Riley in and you know, really work with Bruce Swidd in on his own songs, Bad Buxer. So I'm going to go with the split with Quincy. Decision was made uh, after Bad. The other two I was going to go for, I'll say very briefly, is the fact that the King of Pop name officially sort of was created in the Dangerous Era. Obviously, it had its roots with the speech at the Black Radio Awards. Um, in fact, a couple of papers in America called him the King of Pop in like 84, but it really, um, the PR offensive to call Michael the King of Pop really truly started in Dangerous Era. And the other one was the fact that um, the 93 allegations, that whole incident, as bad as it was, the one positive is it gave us history. What became history? Mm. Mm. Nice. How about Mr. James? Those are all excellent, excellent moments, guys, that I could totally relate to. Mine, you may or may not be able to relate to. It's very kind of personal, but... Uh, mine's probably when about two years maybe or a year or sometime after already having the album I had discovered Will You Be There and um, I'm not sure if I shared this story before or not but you know as a kid you know listening to your CD and I'd probably listened to it hundreds of times at that point I'd always skip that boring song with that super boring classical intro and some organic moment came on where it just played through and I discovered the masterpiece that is Will You Be There? And of course, I appreciate the classical intro now, but at the time, I mean, what an undiscovered gem. It was, it was a big, big, big moment. And I remember playing it again and again and again, realizing it had been there the whole time it was just mind-blowing for me. That's so incredible to hear. Wow. Wow. What a story. I wonder if other listeners out there have something similar, if they've just discovered something which has been there in front of them the whole time. Miss Elizabeth. Yes, yeah, so lovely hearing everyone's moments there, the special moments. Uh, mine is it's from Remember the Time, and there's this moment in the short film <laughs> where Michael comes on, comes on the screen and he's in that black cloak. And you know it's him. You know, you just know he's him, but you can't see anything to tell you it's him. And it's just this moment where he spreads that, like, gold sand and then he steps into it and he disappears and then he materialises. And it's just like he dissolves into this gold dust and he just, he just appears. And for me, the fact that he just... The, it just epitomises the magic as he reappears in his gloriousness, his fullness. And when I first saw this, I was really small. You know, I was at that age where your fantasy, you don't really have any lines between reality and fantasy. And when I first saw that, that image, I really, like, I just believed that to be possible. And I always have that as, like, a touchstone for me of, like, the magic of Michael and the magic that you can create through art. You can make anything reality and that is just a moment for me that will always stand out the most from that era yeah 
what a range of moments that you all shared so fantastic thank you very much as jamin would say that was very special but that was so good thank you wow so what a terrific discussion again this episode has been amazing the roundtable i'm so glad that it's gone so well and i've learned so much from all of you
promises and secrets so undone. And she promised me forever and the day we live as one. We made our vows, we live a life anew. And she promised me in secret that she'd love me for all time. So promise so untrue. Tell me what will I do? Jackson has a reputation for extraordinary music films, and next Sunday will be no exception. What about us? It's the King of Pop's world premiere video, Remember the Time, starring Eddie Murphy, Iman, and Magic Johnson. Get ready for Michael Jackson's Remember the Time next Sunday after In Living Color. Hi, this is Rinton Guest, the author of The Trials of Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. So in closing, I want to ask, 25 years on, how does Dangerous hold up in Michael's discography and in music? Who would like to lead off to finish up this roundtable? Yeah, so historically, Dangerous, is, I think it still pretty much holds up. The technology, the, the kind of sonics of the album still sound fantastic. Even the new Jack Swing stuff, which if you listen to anyone else's albums around at the time, other than maybe Guys, but uh, if you listen to Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cruel and, uh, you know, what Keith Sweat was doing around the time and Heavy D and, you know, Rex and Effect, what they were doing around the time, it sounds off its time. Whereas Michael, the, 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 the magic he was able to bring to Teddy Riley's work is that there's a longevity to it. Maybe not so much with Why You Want to Trip On Me and... She drives me wild, although I do really like that song and it has a bit of fine young cannibals about it. 
Yeah, I love Fine Young Cannibals. Fine Young Cannibals, man. Underrated. <laughs> but there is something very Fine Young Cannibals about that song. Yeah, I never thought of that. Was. And, you know, Jam is, it still sounds fresh. And Remember the Time is never going to get old. And Black or White is always going to be a, a you know, a legendary triple uh, uh, A Michael Jackson record. Um, yeah, I think it still, I think it still stands up. I think it's still a fantastic album. And, I think Mike said earlier about the departure from Quincy. It's quite, it's very important because Quincy, however brilliant he was, I, I always thought he hindered Michael's songwriting in the sense that pre-Quincy or outside of Quincy's work, prior to uh, Off the Wall, Michael wrote, pers- wrote personal songs then. You know, that's what you get for being polite. He's a very personal, as personal as any of his records on history. And then... Um, uh, what's the other one? Bless His Soul, which is on the Triumph album, is as personal as anything on history or dangerous. It's only when he works with Quincy that he his, his own songs, even though they are quite personal, they they're not as they're not as kind of targeted. I mean, Bless His Soul is clearly about him. That's what you get for being polite. Is clearly about himself, and they're very very honest and very earnest. And he was a kid when he was writing them, so I think Quincy, however brilliant he was, I think he did limit Michael in terms of his songwriting so then when you get to by the time you get to dangerous and his you know quoting scripture you know in the song dangerous uh, the song dangerous none of us have actually spoken about it It sums up michael jackson to a t fantastic dance track biblical uh uh, references fred astaire references uh new jack swing references who else would have had all of those kind of cultural references to bring together into one song even prince who i'm a massive fan of would never have been able to do a song like Dangerous because he just didn't make danceable songs in that sense. So, yeah, absolutely stands up and it's still a fantastic album. Oh, my only issue is maybe it's overlong. Maybe there's too many different types of songs kind of competing for place on there. But otherwise, yeah, magnificent record and, you know, worthy of any kind of great catalogue. Brilliant. Mike, I want to say again to listeners, please read... Mike's book, the chapter on Dangerous is incredible, as are all the chapters, but yeah, really love those chapters. What would you say to how Dangerous holds up? What's interesting is Dangerous was the first album where in the recording studio of a Michael Jackson album, um, you know, analog was being phased out slightly for the Pro Tools. So Teddy Riley was using Pro Tools, and that's partly why it holds up as, I can't remember who said Bad has that sort of 80s sound. But, yeah, Dangerous, Michael's, well, Teddy Riley in particular was using Pro Tools, so that's one of the reasons why it does sound more modern. Um, I had a really interesting discussion with uh, Michael's mastering engineer, Bernie Grumman, um, and he was shocked when the masters were brought over to a studio because obviously he'd been mastering off the wall Thriller Bad. And this record comes in and he was just shocked at how like aggressive, mechanical and hard edge this thing was. So that was quite a, a good moment to hear from Bernie, you know, about how that was the, the first moment that that sound, you know, had come to the studio from Michael. Um, yeah, I think that the new Jack Swing combination of, you know, the, the melodies and the driving beats, I, I think they hold up and... <laughs> 
I'm going to be slightly biased, I think, is as you know, Q, um, I've told you before that Dangerous is my favourite album. So yeah. I think anything else I say now will be slightly biased. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's my favourite album and I don't think it sounds dated now. And yeah, I still love listening to it. Andy Healy, share your thoughts. Yeah, look, I concur with what everyone's saying. I agree. You know, the new Jack Swing stuff, what Michael brought to the genre, which had been, you know, clearly established um, through the late 80s and early 90s, continue to push it forward. And I think as a result of kind of imbuing it with more melody and more craft in the songwriting um, and drawing the best out of Teddy really makes those songs still sound pretty fresh and, and still relevant uh, today. Um, you know, you get a track like Jam, you know, with its horn line that is popping up again in Uptown Funk. You know, you, you, you still hear um, reference points in today's music. I think it, um, you know, for me, it was a continuation of form for Michael. And I think as an album in totality, it's um, pretty close to perfect. Nice. Who would like to go next, Miss Elizabeth or Mr. James? I think Dangerous is just, you know, Dangerous, first of all, Dangerous is just so much more than the album, which is so much, you know, in itself. But it's the album artwork, that painting, it's the dancing the dream, it's the short films, it's the performances. I think Dangerous is the complete, complete, you know, multifaceted self-expression of Michael Jackson at the time. And it was a complete work. And um, for me, it's a treasure. It's just filled with hidden mysteries. And there's a wealth of like magical and inspirational artifacts within it that keep revealing themselves the more you look. So there's just so much detail, there's depth and there's intricacy. There's never, you'll never get to the bottom of dangerous. I think there's, if you keep looking and you keep looking for more, you'll find more. And um, I will echo the words of, you know, Quincy Jones when Michael sent it to him, because he did send it to him after it was ready. It's a masterpiece in just a word. It's a masterpiece. It really is. It really is. Mr. James. Uh, I would agree. I think it's, I think it's a single best album. And uh, uh, in fact, yesterday I was, uh, I had a friend over and I was talking about this podcast that I was going to be on it. And uh, he admitted to me that he like knows nothing of Michael's, like work he just knows the hits and um so i uh gave him a copy of dangerous and i was really nervous because like he's he was a totes noob and i didn't know if um if you know if 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 it might be too deep for him and i've gotten like so many texts from him today um he's loving it and that is and he's pretty he's a pretty young guy he's like 22 years old so that's proof that it, you know his favorite artist is Childish Gambino, who who's a genius. He's a great artist. Um, Love Donald like, Glover. He's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah, and uh, you know uh, Michael Jackson stands up next. In fact, he texted me that he hears a lot of MJ's influence now in um, uh, Childish Gambino. So uh, it it's just it's a it's he's still innocent enough that like there's this bright hopeful quality to it but he's he's 
he's his, he has that full on adult awareness. You know, it's 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 sort of Michael before he had reason to be angry, and I think uh, um, you know it's 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 a masterpiece. That's you summed it up, and Quincy summed it up. Mic drop, boom. <laughs> what else can we say? You've said everything. You've said it so well. Incredible. Happy anniversary, Dangerous 25, I think we can all say. Wow. Well, thank you to everyone. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you, Mike, Andy, James, Samar, and uh, did I miss anyone? That was everyone. And Jamin in Mission Control. Thank you. Also, just a quick thank you to Damien Shields and Paul Black, who I sort of, we got some feedback on what we should discuss and we worked through some ideas and, and both of those um, inputs really influenced the, uh, the, the 10 topics that I, I narrowed in on. So thank you so much. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed that. And I hope that this helps Dangerous 25 for you and, and something to, to listen and learn from. I've learned so much. So I'll go around the, the table and farewell to everyone and, and share your contact details and anything else that you would like to mention at the end of the show. But just from my and, and Jamin behalf, thank you so much for either getting up early in the morning or giving us your day or staying up until the, the wee hours of the night while your loved ones are sleeping. So thank you so much. James, I'll start with you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. Uh Thank you, everyone, for listening. And it's such a pleasure to speak and meet um, all of you on this podcast. Have a good night. Thank you. Mr. Andy Healy. Yeah, thanks, guys. Um, it's great to be talking about the music and it's great to be talking about the art. So um, especially with people who you can learn so much from. So uh, thank you for inviting me along. You're welcome. And where can people find the MJ 101 series and the Dangerous 25 book when it is released? So Dangerous 25 will come out on November 26. Download for free at mj101series.com. Cannot wait. Sam, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, bless you. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh, it's late again. but uh, We do this for Michael. We, we do, do this for love, right? <laughs> that's what yeah fun. elizabeth that's your line isn't it <laughs> we, it's all for love it's all for love <laughs> sam where can people find you online uh you can find me on twitter at the mjap or on our website which is the michael jackson academia project.wordpress.com and can i just say it's really nice to speak to james la as well and everyone else of course but especially him because i've been in touch oh he's been in touch with me a few times on on uh, social media and i've never actually got the chance to talk to him or say anything to him so it's very very nice to hear from him and speak to him as well likewise thank you i love these moments mr mike smallcomb thank you so much and and again thank you for writing so well about the later works i think that's why your book stands head and shoulders above so much is because we learned so much that we did not know before so all of that hard work that you put into making michael thank you very much yeah thanks q it means a lot it's been i think we've been on air well hours and hours now and it's it's been every every moment's been amazing and to, sh to share it all with you guys um so i hope the listeners enjoy it i think they as will as, i think as much as we you know enjoy taking part for sure um, in, in terms of where you can find me um i'm on twitter 
Facebook, um, makingmichael.co.uk. I've got a lot of content to share this month, um, in particular um, the full versions of my interviews with some of the collaborators for the book. I've only published two so far, I think. I think we had Rob Hoffman and Jimmy Jam. I've got a 5,000-word special with Matt Forger that I'm going to drop next week, um, which, yeah. <laughs> that will be out already by the time this goes to air, so head over to the site, guys. Yeah, so look out for that one. And also a short film about the collaboration between Rod Temperton and Michael Jackson in memory of Rod Temperton, who passed away last month. So I've got that one coming up as well. So pl- plenty to... to share this month mj content also and the website is makingmichael.co.uk brilliant miss elizabeth thank you so much it's the first time i've got to speak to you as well as sam so it's been an absolute pleasure today thank you for joining us thank you so much q and thank you so much jamin for inviting me on the show and Thank you to all these amazing guests that you pulled together. You guys have really enriched my evening and inspired me very much to kind of go further with Dangerous in a way that I haven't before. And I'm actually really looking forward to listening to this episode a few times, you know, as it gets released. Um, I want to just say another special thank you to Q and Jamin because you've created something with this, with the MJ cast that I can't imagine the Michael Jackson fan community living without is just as though it's always been here, but I know you guys put so much work into this and we, I just really appreciate you and your energy and your positivity. It's wonderful. Thank you. I think it has always been here. It's been us with our MJ friends all over the world talking amongst ourselves, but now we get to share it. And, and others that aren't close to other MJ mates. So thank you. I appreciate that. I just, want to, add that, um, I just want to add that, yeah, reiterate that of the interviews that I did around the launch. My favorite was with you guys, definitely. Yay. That um, was so fun that day. That was so fun. And you also didn't sort of shirk from asking a couple of, you know, challenging questions. So I really enjoyed that. Awesome. What you guys do is amazing. Elizabeth, where can people find you and your recently released book, The Dangerous Philosophies, which isn't just about the album, but the it's an entire concept and way of thinking. Where can people find all of you and those details? Okay. Um, I teach Michael Jackson online uh, academically, and you can find all my Michael Jackson online courses at onlinearteducation.co.uk. And the Journal of Michael Jackson Academic Studies is where all the academic research that anybody wants to do is published. And you can find us at michaeljacksonstudies.org. We also have a podcast, which you can find on the site, just slash podcast. And my book, The Dangerous Philosophies of Michael Jackson, His Music, His Persona and His Artistic Afterlife, is the first academic book written on Michael in the English language. So any of you who are thinking of studying Michael in any capacity... Um, you can find it at onlinearteducation.co.uk slash shop or Amazon or any of your like normal retailers. Um, join the conversation. You know, Michael is a beautiful subject to study. Join the conversation. I think that's 
that's so perfectly said join the conversation because that's what this is uh you mentioned before twitter is where you sort of find so much talking and twitter for me is a, like a global conversation so yeah everyone join in but thank you all again so uh, if you haven't already, if you're listening to the show, click subscribe either on our site or search for us in a podcast application. Just subscribe. It's for free. We do all of this work for you and you get to enjoy it. And if you subscribe, it automatically goes to your device. You can have the settings. So once you've listened to the episode, it deletes so it doesn't continue to take up hardly any memory space. And it's so convenient. And then if your internet drops out, you don't have to start it all again and all of that stuff. But you can find us and all the links to subscribe over at themjcast.com, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. We are The MJ Cast. We do posts on Tumblr and we look forward to your correspondence and feedback of the show. We hope your feedback from the Prince Michael Jackson Roundtable discussion helped shape this one. So let us know if you liked the changes and email us at themjcast at icloud.com. That would be so great to hear from you. And as I pull out my show notes, we played a couple of tracks this episode. I believe we played the awesome Jam Nick Redux by Remix by Nick. We played the brilliant demo for Give In To Me and the ISH mix of Who Is It? And we hope you enjoyed that. But everyone who participated, our love and thanks and friendship to all of you. Thank you so much for staying up and, and being part of this. And to all those listening at home, thank you for tuning in. Jamin, thanks to Mission Control. So thank you, everybody. And go and crank Dangerous right now. And then later, go smash the TV with the concert and just blow, <laughs> blow it up, blow it up. Dangerous 25. <laughs> thanks for tuning into the MJ cast. Michael on.